We'll hear argument first this morning in number 91261, Building and Construction Trades Council versus Associated Builders and Contractors of Massachusetts and Rhode Island, and etc. <laughs> Mr. Freed? Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. This is a case of implied preemption. The Court of Appeals held that a public owner developing its property may not support a agreement between its construction manager and a council of local unions, an agreement of the sort specifically authorized by sections 8E and 8F of the National Labor Relations Act. The Massachusetts Water Resources Authority, one of the petitioners here, is under federal court order to complete a massive and complicated construction project. Um, the Authority, as any public or, pub or private owner with a similar task, has engaged the services of a construction industry specialist here, Kaiser Engineering, another of the petitioners, to schedule and plan the tasks to be performed, to supervise the, the contractors performing those tasks, and to establish a labor re relations regime for the project. Accordingly, Kaiser did propose to the authority that the labor relations regime here should be one which is quite common on such projects, a project labor agreement, which is an agreement with all of the unions that usually supply crafts to such a project in return for exclusive representational rights for all workers on the projects, irrespective of their contracting and subcontracting relations, the contractors and eventually the owner of the project get the benefit of stable costs, stable labor costs throughout the life of the project and security against the kinds of labor uh, disruptions that are caused by lawful labor activity. Kaiser proposed such an arrangement to the authority which approved the proposal and accordingly Kaiser negotiated and signed the agreement with the unions here. I suppose the authority was uh, bound by the contract. The, co uh, the authority uh, was not a signatory to the contract. I know, I know, but the, what, the, I suppose the, the, author the uh, Kaiser was its agent. Well, a great point is made of that. Nowhere is that said. On some copies of the cover of the agreement, and, we, and that is uh, reprinted uh, in one of the appendices, it said that this was done on behalf of the authority. And that, of course, is quite true. The authority is the ultimate uh, party that stands to benefit from this. <clears throat> However, it is nowhere stated that Kaiser is an agent, nor is Kaiser, uh, I'm sorry, that the authority is an agent, nor is the authority a signatory. Uh, in these uh, connections, uh, of course, uh, these uh, contracts are read in such a way as to assure their validity. And Kaiser is a sophisticated and a frequent player uh, in this particular arena. And, of course, it had every intention to be bound. It is not at all clear whether the authority would have been bound by virtue of the contract itself, by virtue of that project labor agreement itself. It's quite clear that Kaiser is bound. It's quite clear that Kaiser is a signatory. Well, why wouldn't it be bound? Why wouldn't the authority be bound if they approved in advance the negotiation of this contract 
and Kaiser had been hired as its uh, for the purpose of uh, managing labor relations, among other things. Well, perhaps it would have been bound, and uh, if it would be bound, uh, it might be uh, it might be subject to suit under uh, Section 301 uh, uh, to enforce that contract. But that would not, in any way, affect its validity. Now, uh, in order to make the arrangement an effective one, because of Massachusetts uh, uh, competitive bidding laws, the authority included adherence to the arrangement as a bid specification. The National Labor Relations Board in another proceedings, the district court in this proceeding, as well as the panel of the Court of Appeals and the Court of Appeals on Bank, all agreed that this was a valid labor agreement under sections 8E and 8F. The Court of Appeals found, however, that the specific action of the authority in including adherence to the arrangement as a bid specification improperly intervened in labor relations and therefore that that action was preempted. Well, does that turn, um, that decision turn on whether uh, the authority was acting as a proprietor or as a regulator? In our view, it ought to turn on it. In the view of the Court of Appeals, it does not. Mm -hmm. And we think that that is a serious mistake. The doctrine of implied preemption in general uh, gives, a court of, gives a court the authority to intervene in and to invalidate the action of a state only if what the state has done in some way uh, contradicts a policy of federal legislation. But the policy of federal legislation here is to leave the choice of a project labor agreement open as an option so that what the authority did here was not in any way to contradict that policy, but in fact to utilize it. Now, under the machinists' doctrine, which is the specific head of labor preemption on which the Court of Appeals relied, the uh, rule often repeated by this court is that a state may not seek to regulate that which the labor laws indicate must remain free for the play of labor market forces. But if a state is not to supply all of its needs directly, if it is to enter the market as a purchaser, then it is inevitable that some line, such as the line between the state as a participant in the market and the state as a regulator be drawn. Can, can the state be a regulator just by virtue of uh, it, its use of its spending power? Uh, this court so held in the Gould case. Right. And the test is a test which I would draw from what this court said in the uh, New York telephone case. What is the scope, purport, and impact of what the state has done? Simply the fact that it uses its spending power is not a sufficient condition to get it out from under labor preemption. Of course not. But in this case, the scope, purport, and impact of what the state did was precisely tailored to its needs as a proprietor. It did nothing that a private party faced with the same problems would not have done. 
It's very striking how narrowly tailored the project labor agreement in this case is to the specific needs of this project. These uh, agreements often require all contractors coming on the job to be union signatory generally in all their work for the life of the agreement. This agreement does not require that. This agreement only requires that the uh, contractors accept union representation on this job. That is how narrowly tailored the authority's uh, action is to serve its narrow proprietary interests. Another way of putting it... Mr. Reed, suppose a state decides that it wants to uh, uh, assure all its contracts uh, a degree of, uh, of security, so it provides that uh, all state contracting must be done with uh, union, uh, with, with union uh, contractors. Would that be valid? On an appropriate record, with appropriate findings, that might be valid. Yes, Your Honor. I could not say in a blanket way that under no circumstances would such a, uh, would such a labor policy be invalid. But there's a great difficulty. The difficulty is to show that something that is that comprehensive, that reaches beyond the needs of a particular project, nevertheless serves proprietary interests. I would not want to say a, uh, a priori that that showing could never be made. But that showing need not be made here because of the very narrowness of what the state did. Would you look to the, uh, just the face of the, uh, of, of the law in question, or, or do we have to uh, investigate the intent of, uh, of the legislators in each case? The motive inquiry is uh, absolutely unnecessary to such a thing. What's necessary is the purport, purport of the action on its face and its impact and its scope as it deals with those conditions revealed in the record. The perfect contrast is with the Gould case. In the Gould case, the state was using its spending power. It was talking about how it would make purchases. But it is simply implausible, as this court said, to connect up what the state did with any proprietary concerns that the state might have had. And that's the sort of inquiry which should be had. And it's an entirely familiar inquiry for this court. It engages in it in all sorts of contexts without getting tangled up into inquiries into subjective motivation. Just a last term, in the context of foreign sovereign immunity, the court distinguished between a foreign government acting as a regulator of the market on one hand or acting as a, in the court's word, a player in the market. Now what we're saying is here the authority was clearly acting as a player in the market. Mr. Freed, how do you distinguish our ruling in the Golden State case? Uh, that, is a, uh, that is an easier distinction to make because in the Golden State case, uh, the state had no proprietary interests in, st uh, in play at all. It was not a proprietor of any of the parties involved or any of the interests or any of the properties involved. So the Golden State case, of which a great deal is made in the Court of Appeals, uh, seems to us to be really quite irrelevant. If, if that distinction is the proper one. Uh, between the state as a market yeah. rate? Uh, well, we believe it is, and we uh, certainly rely on it. And I would draw the Court's attention to the fact that if there is no such distinction, then the machinist's uh, doctrine 
cuts in a most unpredictable and I would think devastating way into the, uh, into the room for maneuver of a state when it is not supplying its own needs but is acting as a purchaser supplies its needs by purchasing them on the market. So I think some such distinction is absolutely necessary. There is talk uh, in the Court of Appeals, rather uh, glancing talk, and in the respondent's brief and in some of their amici brief, to another head of preemption, Garmin preemption. Now, Garmin preemption deals principally with situations where a state seeks to either supplement or contradict the exclusive jurisdiction of the board. Needless to say, nothing of that sort is present in this case. It is also uh, obtains as a form of preemption where the state seeks to limit rights granted under Section 7 of the Act. And in paragraph 34 of their complaint, the respondents, plaintiffs, did claim that the rights of workers to be represented or not to be represented by unions of their choice were in some way interfered with by the state's action. But that argument uh, viciously begs the question, since uh, those Section 7 rights are explicitly uh, uh, qualified by the rights of Section 8E and 8F. If 8E and 8F apply, uh, the workers simply do not have the full range of Section 7 rights. So I think Garmin preemption is uh, really not in play here, and it's understandable that the Court of Appeals did not rely on it. Well, let's, let's just assume that arguably uh, uh, the argument had some, had some uh, content. <coughs> didn't, the, uh, didn't the Labor Board uh, have a chance to say so? Yes, there was a proceeding brought before the Labor Board, and that's something that must not be forgotten, that the Labor Board has held that yes. this is a valid agreement. With respect to the this Act. very agreement. This very agreement. And the District Court and the Court of Appeals uh, quite clearly said, yes, we do not quarrel with that assumption. So the justification for the Garmin preemption has already been satisfied. I would have thought it's taken right off the boards, uh, Justice White. Now, there is a further suggestion that's made, and it's a suggestion that seeks to meet uh, my argument about the hamstringing of the, uh, of the state, and that is that what could be done is the state might simply have hired Kaiser as a general contractor, but that would require that this state and many other states, for no reason, should repeal their competitive bidding laws so that they did not have to let these contracts directly if I may, I would like to well, reserve... Mr. Freed, wouldn't, wouldn't they be able to reserve their competitive bidding laws simply by bidding for the construction manager's uh, contract, putting that out to bid? But at that point, uh, the formalism that would be uh, invoked would be a formalism without any of the advantages of formality because the question would reappear then in the form, may the state either require that the general contractor enter this kind of an agreement, suggest it, uh, when the contractor uh, suggests it, approve it, and you'd get all those questions all over again. So uh, it would be a very intrusive uh, uh, 
uh, intrusion into the way states do their business on one hand, and it wouldn't get you anything on the other. You'd be left with the same problems all over again, just at a slightly different stage in a slightly different form. Very well, Mr. Freed. Uh, Ms. Mahoney, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, before uh, addressing the, some of the specific issues that were raised, I'd like to emphasize that the United States and the National Labor Relations Board are here because we firmly believe that the action of the, Mass- of the state of Massachusetts did not in any way conflict with the National Labor Relations Policy. And in fact, the injunction that has been entered by the First Circuit really seriously interferes with very important policies under that Act. And those are really two. Uh, are uh, you going to, by any chance, isn't there a presidential order that uh, has some bearing on this case? Well, Your Honor, I, it doesn't have any direct bearing. You're referring to the executive order that the president signed. Are you going to speak about it at I, all? I certainly can. I'll address it right now, if you, if you prefer. The, um, the reason that the order does not have any direct bearing on the case is that what the president decided was that for the purchases of uh, federal construction projects, purchase of construction services with federal money, that um, project labor agreements would not be entered into in order to further what the president viewed as efficient um, contracting. Did you don't not, think that has any bearing on this case? Well, the reason, Your Honor, that I don't think it does is that the point here is that Congress left it to the states to decide when they use their money, when they are the purchaser, how they want to order their labor relations on these projects. But, oh, this, this project doesn't have any federal funds? It has federal funds that would not be affected by the President's order because, because? there's no uh, retroactivity involved. It was specifically written in a oh, way. You mean all the subcontracts have already been made in this case? I can't imagine it. Your Honor, the way that it works is that the uh, grants that have already been issued uh, can be applied to contracts that have already been entered and into. all the federal money... All the federal money that that, that was going to uh, that this project was going to take has already been appropriated. Well, there is uh, another round or at of least appropriations. The, the government the government has agreed to it. Your Honor, the there has is committed no, itself to. It, there is there is only one. It's done. The appropriations are done one year at a time. There is no commitment to do future funding for this project. There are still some ninety three FY ninety three. Why wouldn't they? Why wouldn't they? Uh, because the, the funds can be applied to existing contracts, and the state of Massachusetts has a number of existing contracts, and they are not affected by this order. So both the Massachusetts Water Authority and the um, EPA are of the view right. that this, in fact, would not impact Thank this you. case. And as a matter of law, it really isn't relevant to the NLRA issue because the president was acting pursuant to his procurement authority and isn't constrained in the exercise In any of event, the... Uh, the order certainly doesn't eliminate the issue we have before us. Oh, not in any sense. And it, yeah. it doesn't really have any direct bearing on it whatsoever, other than to just show that uh, purchasers of construction services uh, have the, the option uh, to decide how they want to order labor relations on construction yeah. projects. I'd like to speak first to uh, the issue of whether this is something that Congress would have intended the state to enter into. Uh, In this preemption case, uh, we have the benefit of being able to look at the interests that are at stake here and see that Congress has, in 8E and 8F, balanced these very same interests and concluded that the interests of the purchaser in achieving labor peace 
on a construction project throughout the duration of that project are to be given priority over the interests of suppliers who prefer to do business with a non-union workforce. We don't in any way suggest that those that the interests of employees and suppliers to work on a non-union basis are not important. They are. But Congress weighed those interests, those, those interests of, of doing business in that form against the interests of achieving labor stability. And it included that the suppliers, that the suppliers' interests had to be subordinated to the preferences of the purchaser. So here in this case, we have precisely the analogous situation. We have the state as the purchaser of construction services having concluded in response to economic forces that it needed a project labor agreement. And there's a factual finding in this case that unlike the line drawing that might occur in some future cases, in this case, the district court specifically found that the purpose of this agreement was to uh, obtain labor stability uh, due to the fact that the, the unions have legitimate market power in, in the Massachusetts area and that in order to get labor peace, it needed to use this arrangement. There was the state adopt the opposite policy and uh, forbid the use uh, of these uh, union hire, pre-hire agreements on, on, on any, by any of its contractors for these projects? Uh, yes, Your Honor, I believe they could. As long as it is acting reasonably in furtherance of its commercial interests, and that really ought to be the Does inquiry. Does that import some sort of a reasonable judgment as to economic conditions um, without reference to its judgment as to labor policy, sound labor policy? I think that um, we wouldn't inquire to see whether there was some uh, view about labor policy. Certainly many political actors have views about labor policy. But if the decision is one that can reasonably be uh, described as something that would appear to be in furtherance of their commercial interests, and the policy you described certainly could be, then uh, it would be fair to conclude that that's the type of conduct, the same kind of commercial activity that Congress intended to permit. Um, and, and there really is no good reason to distinguish between the state and the uh, private purchaser in this situation, because as this court recognized in Abood, uh, the interests in labor stability are, are no less in the public sector than they are in the private sector. Precisely the very interests that this court found in, in Wilkie and Romero and McNeff. But those, those interests all transcend uh, labor stability in a particular job. I'm sorry, Your Honor? Well, those interests always transcend uh, the state's interest in, a, in, in labor stability for a particular project. You mean its interest in having a, a uh, yes, well, we're piece on that project? Yes. Yes, and, and that's, that's the interest that Congress said could, in fact, be brought to bear, that they could insist that the uh, suppliers adhere to a union agreement or union recognition for that project. I'd also like to emphasize what the effect is on the non-union But, but the effect goes beyond the project. The effect goes to labor stability in the community at large, is it not? Uh, on this particular, um, in, in, in this, this arrangement? In this case, yes. Uh, no, Your Honor, I think that the effect is, is really uh, that, that is to have labor stability on this project. It has no interest uh, one way or the other in labor stability or instability in the community? I'm sure they would prefer economic community. I don't think that that's what this policy was attempting to further, and certainly the district court didn't make a finding that suggested that it was, and no one has indicated, to my knowledge, that that was in fact a motivation. Um, this case, Ms. Mahoney, how, how how important is it to the government's position that uh, uh, that this uh, um, you, you make a lot of it in in, in your brief that uh, the state is really just. Uh, uh, 
um, implementing an agreement between Kaiser, what if the state itself had decided to do its own uh, general contracting? Your Honor, that would be fine. Under the Board's precedence, the... um, That would make any difference in your position in this case? I think that this case is even easier because it is implementing the agreement of private parties, so to the extent that... There's any concern that the the But that's state not essential to your position. No, you would Your take Honor. the same position if the state itself had been. Yes, we would. As long as the state is acting in furtherance of reasonable commercial interests, there simply is not a good reason to infer that Congress intended to prohibit this. And related to this, I think that the Court of Appeals uh, seriously misunderstood the the purpose of the machinist doctrine. It. Could I ask you? Uh, would it make any difference uh, whether we uphold or strike down 13.1? As, as, as that, that wouldn't necessarily uh, invalidate the contract between Kaiser and the uh, uh, union. Well, but the, um, the only way that, that it could be binding on the uh, suppliers who are coming in is if it's a term of the agreement between the state or between well, I know, but the contract says that all, sub, all, all contractors uh, are going to be bound by the labor contract. Well, Kaiser would have a very difficult time enforcing that. Why, why would they? Because Kaiser is not going to be the contracting party with the suppliers. Under Massachusetts procurement law, mm-hmm. the state has to actually enter into the arrangements with the suppliers. So Kaiser really wouldn't have the ability to make those suppliers adhere to that requirement. It's really because of the requirements of the Massachusetts procurement law that it has to be done this way. And the effect of the First Circuit decision is that in Massachusetts, you could not have enforceable project labor agreements well, or, or the, with any teeth. Uh, uh, well, I would, think the, uh, I would think the union could enforce it against, uh, against uh, they could pick at everything in sight. Well, oh, they certainly could. They could pick it, but the, the fact is that the way that the court has the... Thank you very much. Thank you, Ms. Mahoney. Mr. Baskin, we'll hear from you. <laughs> Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court, the arguments you have just heard violate the most fundamental principles of labor law preemption. This court has consistently held over the years that the cornerstone of the act is the collective bargaining process between private employers and private unions and that it is off-limits for government to interfere in that process by dictating the outcome of the negotiations. And that's exactly what has happened here. The MWRA has not only told us, our members, who we have to bargain with, but they've eliminated the bargaining. They've told us the outcome of the agreement, and they've eliminated any ability on the part of these contractors to uh, use whatever economic weapons might be available to them. That's the heart of the machinist doctrine. There can be no more blatant direct interference than what has happened here. And all we have heard... That's always allowed under 80 and 8F, isn't it? Only for private employers. A crucial difference. A crucial difference. That's the issue, then. That is the issue, Your Honor. What we have heard and what we've seen in the briefs is the other side is saying that, well, a private employer could do it, so why can't the government? The reason is that the government is different. The reason is that 80 does not include governments within the exceptions that are created for private employers. The plain language of the National Labor Relations Act in 8D says, express language, that the government shall not compel collective bargaining agreements between private employers and private unions. So where is the exception from 8D that's created by 8E? It's certainly not in the language of 8E because 8E does not even refer to state public political subdivisions. 
So AD is not an exception on its face to AD. They said, well, look at the legislative history of AD. Uh, it shows that there used to be... Well, where will we find AD in your brief? AD is cited. H.K. Uh, Porter has mentioned the case in which this court... Uh, I asked, where will I find AD in your brief? Uh, you will find it uh, right next to the uh, citation to H.K. Porter. It's also cited in number 18, pages 18 and 22 is the uh, reference to H.K. Porter, which, of course, is the seminal case decided where, by the where, court. Where will I find uh, 8D, the text? Uh, I'm sorry if the text of 8D is omitted. I apologize for that omission, Your Honor. It, it is omitted? Uh, and if it's uh, not referred to, well, actually, it's cited page 22. Uh, it is uh, the cite to 8D uh, itself, which is stated in footnote 12, 22. It's been interpreted as an express prohibition. The actual language of AD. I would, I would think if you're going to rely on AD, you would have set it forth in your brief. Yes, Your Honor, and uh, I would apologize for that omission, except that the uh, statute has been interpreted by this court a number of times, and by reference to H.K. Porter, uh, it was felt that it was uh, set forth uh, for the court. It was only raised as uh, the alternative to what we have heard from the other parties, that AE is somehow a, a great exception that is uh, created to permit this type of activity. Now, I just want to go back to that point, that AD is created only as a, something to deal with relations between private employers on a voluntary basis and unions. It says nothing about public employers. If one looks at the legislative history of AD, one will find no reference to a union-only project agreement imposed by a public employer. And I'd like to address uh, some of the questions raised by the court about the status of the MWRA with regard to this agreement. The fact is, the MWRA's participation was indispensable to the enforcement of this agreement. In the affidavit to Mr. Fox, I believe you'll notice, uh, this was the MWRA's own official, that, and the affidavit of the Kaiser people. They admit that they told the unions up front that the agreement could not be enforced without the MWRA's approval. That was established from the outset. It's a matter of state law. This area is pervasively regulated by Massachusetts law. And what does Massachusetts law say? It says there must be free and open competition the exact opposite of what the state agency has achieved here. Instead, the MWRA went ahead and approved this and then put the bid specification into place. Without 13.1, we've just heard from the Solicitor General, the agreement could not have been enforced. So to pretend that this is an agreement between private parties is simply to ignore the facts of the case. You're arguing that, <clears throat> that the negotiation of the contract between Kaiser and uh, the uh, unions was also preempted since it was on behalf of the... Uh, Agency. The effect of that negotiation, yes, we do. Uh, the, to the extent Kaiser is acting on behalf of the agency and the agreement was essentially null and had no effect, uh, it's really the two sides of the same coin, Your Honor. Uh, I should also note it's been made reference that the NLRB somehow approved this agreement. The NLRB has never looked at this agreement. The general counsel of the NLRB, in an advisory memorandum opinion, in which he was told that Kaiser was not acting as the MWRA's agent, a false assumption, uh, failed to issue a complaint. It's been stated in numerous cases that, that has no precedential authority whatsoever. But we did not pursue the NLRB avenue because we don't view this as an unfair labor practice. We view this as a situation of preemption. That is, that the state is interfering with the careful balance struck by Congress in the National Labor Relations Act. And, and the starting point... You've this, never argued uh, Garmin preemption? We have uh, raised gar both Garmin and Golden State machinist-type preemption. So you're going both tracks? We are going both tracks, Your Honor. Section 7 rights are also being uh, affected here, an area that uh, arguably uh, certainly is uh, protected by the National Labor Relations Act. 
And again, the response that we've heard is that 8E, 8E somehow permits this uh, intrusion on the Section 7 rights. And again, 8E only permits it for private employers. That is what is crucial to the case. So both 8E uses right. the term employer. Yes. But it doesn't say private employer. Employer is defined in Section 2.2 of the Act, which is uh, referenced and all sides admit that the MWRA is not an employer. It's not a, even a question of ambiguity. Not an employer is defi defined in 2.2. Right. And that's the only way that which 8E could use the term employer. So this is simply not a question uh, that the other side has attempted to debate. They've attempted to say and said that one should make an analogy to 80. But when one has the starting point that this court has established and that Congress established, then with that starting point that interference by the government is not permitted, then it's incumbent on them to come forward with more than analogies. It's incumbent on them to come forward with language, statutory language that somehow creates the great exception, the radical exception that they are attempting to promote here. Because it is truly radical. If you open the door for this type of uh, conduct by the state agencies, with all of the many procurement uh, uh, activities that the states and the federal government uh, go through, uh, it'll create a huge hole in the preemption doctrine, and that's what this court recognized in the unanimous opinion in the Gould case. Well, I suppose the argument on the other side is that uh, you, you also create an enormous hole in the, in the ability of the government to, uh, to contract itself. And, and that instead of letting things be done by the private sector, if it's acknowledged that ENF is really necessary for these these massive construction projects to be done, you're, you're by, by not permitting ENF to apply to the states, you're essentially a say, a saying that this all has to be done by uh, by private enterprise, and the state cannot uh, undertake it. There, there are two answers to that, Your Honor. First is it's not a large hole at all. We have not raised any objection about the state establishing all kinds of conditions, whatever they deem necessary to complete their project on time. It's done all the time with all kinds of stabilization agreements. The only very narrow thing that's prohibited is for them to tell contractors that they must have a union agreement and thereby force their employees to join unions, which is not something that is, is in fact, necessary to achieve the completion of the job. But perhaps the best place to look is to the statute and to what Congress said. Congress uh, made no attempt to create this special exception for the states. And in fact, the uniform state law, based on the state court decisions that we did cite in our brief and were not responded to by the other side in the 1950s, was this was beyond the pale for state governments to engage in this kind of activity. The several occasions when it was raised to a state court, they said, no, you cannot, as a state, discriminate on the basis of union activities, and presumably Congress, aware of that law, uh, uniform law throughout the states, made no effort to change the law in the National Labor Relations Act. Seems uh, likely then that the legislative history shows that Congress meant for the situation to stay exactly as it was, and, and as it has been for the years since, because notwithstanding these arguments that we've seen in some of these briefs, uh, these types of project agreements are quite rare uh, in the government sector. And uh, they're not all that common in the private sector. We represent an association that performs work on hundreds of thousands of projects around the country, next to unions, working with unions, and some non-unions, some mix. And these projects manage to get built. Uh, we in the record is a stabilization agreement uh, that shows how the Maryland Harbor Tunnel was built with no union-only requirement in it. So the fact is that the states could achieve their legitimate objectives, if they have them in connection with procurements, without getting into the illegitimate sphere of prohibited interference with the collective bargaining process. Again, as long as the court recalls that that is the basic principle of preemption, 
that the state should stay out of dictating collective bargaining agreements. Everything else from this case achieves our result. What is a stabilization agreement? Oh, a stabilization agreement may be a discussion about certain terms that should apply. It's more than a discussion if it's agreement. Absolutely. It's the result of the discussion. Tell me what the agreement is. Well, in particular... Between whom and whom? It typically is between the contracting agency and all the parties who are going to participate in the contract. It might deal with such things as resolving disputes about how the project... What about wages? It might deal with wages. Of course, many states have prevailing wage laws. I suppose that's what they really want to stabilize, isn't it? Wages. But in fact, our issue... Is that right? No, not... Well, that is one thing, but it's... Well, does it stabilize wages or not? Yes, it very well may. And we don't object to that. That is not the... This is a prevailing wage job. By state statute, there's going to be a set wage, and so that part of it is not necessary. There's no need for an agreement. So a subcontractor, for example, agrees that we'll... These are the... We will pay no more wages than X. Is that it? Yes. And despite a demand by the union to negotiate otherwise? Well, the... Is that right? Not necessarily. Is that right? No. No, Your Honor. It's not necessarily what a stabilization agreement calls for. Well, does it ever? Does it ever? A stabilization agreement could call for a certain wage rate. If the union cares to negotiate a higher wage rate, the government will certainly accept that. It just won't pay for it. So that's really how those agreements can work. But as I say, wages is not the issue in this case, because it's governed by a state law that is already mandating what the wages are. And I think it's also important to understand that if this were simply dealing with some peripheral aspect of labor relations, we would not be before you. There would not be an issue. The Court has already said that certain items, like unemployment insurance and the like, are permissible for the state to go after. But here, they're going after the entire collective bargaining process. That makes it fundamentally different from any case, fundamentally worse than any case that's been before you before. And the parties on the other side have not seen fit to acknowledge that grave difficulty from the outset of their case, and it's crucial to the outcome. I suppose you'd be making the same argument even if this agreement didn't call for membership in the union. Yes. Membership in the union is not the critical feature. It follows automatically from the fact they required us to sign the agreement. And these agreements already had the language in them. We weren't permitted to negotiate about how many days it would take for someone to have to join the union. That's already established. So by signing the agreement, we are, in fact, being forced to have our employees who have not voted for or chosen the union to sign up with the union in order to perform in this government project. And that simply cannot be. So what we have here is, with the starting point of the interference, direct, uncontested interference with the bargaining process, in fact, elimination of the bargaining process. The only excuses for that that we've heard are that private employers can do it. That's irrelevant to the analysis. That there should be a proprietary distinction as opposed to regulation. This Court unanimously said that was not a pertinent analysis where there was the type of interference that we have here. And I should add that this, in fact, is a regulation. It's at least a mixture of proprietary action and regulation. If one looks at the Massachusetts state law definition of regulation, which is cited in the amicus brief filed by the Utility Contractors Association at page 19, a regulation under state law is a requirement imposed by an agency to implement the law enforced or administered by it. Well, what's that got to do with the federal definition? 
Well, because this is an action of the state agency, it's certainly an appropriate place to look as to whether or not this is. The definition is a federal question, isn't it? Yes, and whether or not this is regulation or proprietary action, what I'm simply suggesting is that it is not an open and shut case as to whether or not this, I don't believe there is a federal definition of what constitutes such a regulation in this particular context. It would seem to be an appropriate place to look. But we don't rely on the fact of whether or not it's regulation or proprietary action. It's clear to us, and it was clear to this Court, that state agencies can't claim the license because of proprietary actions to interfere in the collective bargaining process. No further questions? I believe it was in the petitioner's brief. The facts of Golden State were recast so that if the city of Los Angeles in the hypothetical case were the purchaser of taxicab services and the taxicab company was undergoing a labor dispute, it was submitted that certainly the city could take its business elsewhere. Do you agree with that conclusion? We do not agree with the conclusion the way they phrased it. And, in fact, we responded to it in our brief, and the response is that the city would be free to get the service provided, and it would be free to insist that the Golden State people provide the service or they would have to look elsewhere. But in Golden State and here, here they've not given us the opportunity to perform. Well, suppose they said you're in a labor dispute and, therefore, it's beyond contradiction that you can't provide the service that we want and we're taking our business elsewhere. And if they conditioned their finding on our settlement of the labor dispute, that would be impermissible because that is what Golden State held. If they said we have to make a – we need transportation provided or we need the project built, show us that you can provide the service, then that would be permissible. Here they haven't given us that opportunity, and for them to say that – of course, we have no labor dispute at all – but for them to say that we think it's a priori that with a labor dispute you won't be able to finish, that simply cannot be done because then they are directly interfering with the bargaining process. Well, can't the state base its purchasing decision on likelihood and probability? Suppose the state makes the determination that there's a very, very strong possibility of labor instability with a particular contractor. Don't they have the option to stay away from that particular contractor? Because Congress has established the rules for labor relations, and for exactly that reason, that it should not be something that every state and local government gets into. It's not the state or local government's business how the contractor establishes relations with its employees. If the contractor can't perform because of that dispute, then the state has the right to go elsewhere. But suppose the state makes the reasonable judgment that in all likelihood performance will be impaired by reason of the contractor's labor policies. Is the state then not free to take its business elsewhere? It is conceivable that the state could make such a reasoned judgment based on hearings and actual facts being provided to the state, independent of a simple blanket policy that those who don't have unions cannot perform. That's possible that that could happen. But here there were no hearings. There, in fact, are no facts before you, even in the affidavits, that this project cannot be performed. There are only statements that it was inconvenient or somewhat annoying to have to establish the necessary reserved entrances and debate with people about how certain things should be accomplished. No actual statement or finding of fact, certainly in no proceeding, that this type of project could not be performed. Instead, what we have is a blanket exclusion of non-union contractors. 
And I might add a blanket statement to the union contractors, that they are bound by these agreements, whether they uh, are uh, disadvantageous to those contractors or not. And when those agreements come up for renewal, uh, tremendous leverage given to the uh, unions in that area because of the government's interference with the bargaining process. But why can't a state make a judgment that this is a long-term project and we don't want this project disrupted? Well, ironically, the, uh, uh, the ADE argument we've heard is that it was designed for short-term projects rather than long-term projects. But the state can take other actions to prevent disruption. The, the bidding statute that this state is operating under requires that a bidder demonstrate that it is qualified to perform. And the, all the states have procurement laws that are designed to promote open competition at the same time guaranteeing to the states the ability to get their jobs done. So the states already have that power. They already have that right. And Congress has said that they cannot achieve those ends not only because they're not necessary, but because it, it interferes with the federal scheme. And, in fact, it would become a constant abuse of the federal scheme. We've not only seen it in this particular case, we have this $5 billion central artery project right behind it, and there's nothing in the briefs or the arguments of the other side that's going to stop this from applying to a, a $15 million project on a, on a power line uh, or any number of other situations. It will bring the courts into making this decision on a case-by-case -case basis, I suppose, about, about when is the state uh, demonstrated a, a significant need to avoid disruption. Well, it's not supposed to make that determination, the state agency, based on uh, the labor relations policies of the contractors. That's the fundamental issue in this case. The state has many other ways of achieving its legitimate goals, but it's not a legitimate objective to exclude the majority of the construction industry that happens to be non-union. As is in the briefs, only 20% of the union members in this country, uh, of the workers in this country are union members. Somehow projects are getting built. And in fact, they're getting built because it can be done with mixed-use projects. It can be done without local government interference in the collective bargaining process. Mr. Baskin, uh, uh, two questions. If, if, if what you say is true, how, how, do you, how do you explain the enactment of 8E and 8F? I mean, what... They were. Congress was, was, was uh, deluded uh, to believe uh, the opposite of what you've just told us, or what? No. Congress uh, felt a need to uh, encourage uh, and adjust the relations uh, between private employers and unions. That's, of course, the, the National Labor Relations Act. It only applies to private employers and unions. And if they were so concerned about the ability of public uh, owners to have this privilege that the MWRA seeks, then they surely would have passed the, uh, the Public Owner uh, Privileges Act. Uh, that would have allowed the kind of interference that's going on here. Yeah, but generally, generally they wouldn't allow private employers, generally, to, uh, to coerce union membership this way either, would they? Well, they made this, uh, this one exception uh, because of statements that were made and hearings that were held about the need for this in the private sector. Right, so they must have disagreed with what you've just been saying. That it's, uh, that it's not very, really very necessary. They made that uh, uh, finding based on the need for voluntariness, and they were quite uh, specific about it. This is not a government-coerced uh, function, but a voluntary relationship uh, in the private sector, and based on the, the big difference between the private and the public sectors. They could count on market forces to dictate to these private contractors when it's good or bad. Those forces don't apply to a public entity that's got taxpayer dollars. Which, and which may have political motivations exactly. uh, besides. Uh, would, it be, would it be your position, uh, suppose a private individual who, who was, not a, was not an employer within, within the, uh, within the uh, meaning of the act, uh, 
had an arrangement with uh, with an independent contractor that the uh, contractor general contractor could not employ uh, union labor in building in building his house. It certainly would not raise a federal preemption issue. That's in fact the would, question. Would it be valid under the? Uh, Whether it would be valid under AD if uh, he must be an employer in the construction industry. Uh, on the other hand, whether the act would even apply to that situation because uh, he's not an employer would be uh, a different question to which I just don't have any definitive position. Well, why, do, why does uh, the fact that the, the state isn't included as an employer under AD, uh, uh, why does it follow from that that there is preemption? I thought the predicate for preemption was that, uh, at least one of the predicates, a machinist preemption is that the government the Congress has decided that this whole area should be unregulated. Right, unregulated by the government. Uh, well, unregulated by the government. Usually, though, it's uh, the, 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 the Federals, the, the Federals keep their hands off as, as well. Exactly. Under, under machinists. Exactly. But they didn't. They, they regulate this whole area by AD and AF. But only for the relationships between private employers and, uh, and, and private unions. Have we ever, you think we've held before that machinist preemption, uh, it's, it's sort of like sovereign immunity, uh, you have to, uh, the uh, the, gov the, the government in, the, intends to regulate only where it says so, and otherwise the state may not copy uh, what the government does? Well, what Machinist says and what Golden State said was there's a free zone around the collective bargaining process. That's the point. And so the reason why it's important that AD doesn't create a special exception for the states is because it's already been established that they cannot coerce uh, AD and ADF say that, uh, certainly doesn't say that there is a free zone around collective bargaining. It certainly does not create any new government power to impose collective bargaining. HD and HK Porter and Machinists and Golden State, they all say the government can't coerce collective bargaining. Does AD create an exception from that? No. AE regulates only in the sense that it, it creates a voluntary, it permits. Yeah, but it Congress did not create a, an, uh, a free zone for collective bargaining in the construction industry. Yes, it did. It created a free zone from government interference with collective bargaining. It's not a, I'm not, we're not suggesting a free zone from private discussions of collective bargaining or private agreements or private economic weapons. In fact, uh, the court has said those should be protected, too, and we're comfortable with that. If this were a private agreement between an employer in the construction industry and the unions, we would not be before you. But here the issue is, can the government step in and become a party to the negotiations? And in fact, those exact words were used in Golden State, and the answer was no. We uh, urgently uh, plead that the same answer be achieved in this case. The text of, uh, as best you can recall it, of 8D that you, re that you rely on? Uh, 8D says that uh, no employer shall be obligated to uh, accept a, an agreement, uh, agree to a specific agreement with the union. Uh, and that's been interpreted in H.K. Porter to mean that the government shall not require any employer to adopt the union. Only by reason of preemption. I mean, there's nothing in, in, in 8D that says specifically that no state shall, uh, shall require uh, uh, any, any such agreement. Well, in fact... It's just that it says no employer shall be compelled to do so. 
And then H.K. Porter says that means that Shell shall not be compelled by the government either. By the government. Okay. And this court relied expressly on 8D in the Golden State case to say that means both the federal government and the state government. Certainly, if the National Labor Relations Board can't do it, how can it be that the states could do it? The answer is that it cannot be. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Baskin. Uh, Mr. Freed, you have four minutes remaining. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Uh, I didn't exaggerate. Uh, Mr. Baskin has said so. The position of the Court of Appeals and the position for which he argues does mean that states developing their property alone among developers of property are unable to choose project labor agreements. That is his clear position. Now, uh, what's your answer, Mr. Freed, to his argument that uh, 8E and 8F speak in terms of employer, but 2-2 defines an employer to to, uh, exclude the state? Well, 8E and 8F impose prohibitions and then lift those prohibitions in respect to the construction industry. The prohibitions which are imposed speak of employers. Therefore, Mr. Baskin's argument that states are not employers really is an argument that says that the very prohibitions which are lifted by the construction industry provisos also do not apply. The point of the definition of employer to exclude states is to leave state labor relations greater scope, not lesser scope. So I think that the uh, argument on the basis of Section 2 Uh, really moves in entirely uh, the opposite direction. Uh, As to the state law... Except he asserts that what's been done here violates not just D and F, but D. Which doesn't doesn't necessarily hinge upon the term employer, does it? Uh, 8D does, uh, I will uh, admit, rather surprise me, its its entry into the case, but 8D had to do with the NLRB seeking to impose a term between two contesting parties. But of course, the authority here is not imposing a term between two contesting parties. It is a purchaser. The government, indeed the federal government, that's why we have this executive order. The federal government also purchases uh, purchases uh, construction services, and in the course of so doing, a, uh, terms are, quotes, imposed. And that surely doesn't violate H.K. Porter. I think H.K. Porter is entirely inapposite here. That the definition of employer excludes a labor organization, but then it says, except when acting as an employer. <laughs> Well, I think that refers to the situation where a, uh, where a labor organization... I'm trying to help you. Uh, <laughs> thank you so much. Uh, it, uh, However, you know. that, that is one of the funnier uh, pieces of the act, and it relates to the situation where the, uh, for instance, where the labor organization uh, hires people to perform clerical services or things of that sort. Well, you say that the... Um, you say that... Uh, you say that the uh, this state, the state here is just uh, acting in its uh, in its proprietary capacity. That's correct. And uh, and it's in effect hiring people, I suppose. No, it is it's hiring Kaiser, yes. uh, and it's hiring the uh, the contractors. It is not hiring any laborers on the project. I thank the court for its attention.
Thank you, Mr. Fried. The case is submitted. <clears throat> well, here are.